well, welcome everybody to this uh, Palm Sunday, and uh, I want to cover the classic Palm Sunday text with you, but I also, just, uh, just so you're aware, we're going to be in Matthew 16, Matthew 26, and then John 18, so if you, if you have a copy of God's Word and you want to turn to one of those places or keep your thumb in those places, we're going to be turning some. So Matthew 21 is the first text that I'm going to read, and then, uh, like I said, Matthew 16, uh, 26, and John 18. And of course, I, I will be having those on the screen too. So if you didn't bring a copy of God's Word, um, or, um, you, you, or you just want to follow along with us and make sure you get the right you know, um, verse number, you can, you can do that up there. Uh, but I, I want to invite you to join into reading God's Word with me um, in your own copy. And so um, please, please do bring that when, when you can. Uh, Matthew 21 is where we're going to start because I want to read this classic text to you. As we talk about these 30 pieces of silver, the question that I have is, what do we trade? We often like to think of Judas in his own, you know, I'm not like Judas is is what we think. But I want to look at the text today. I want to look at a couple different places in the text and I want to show us, uh, remind us again of things that we often sometimes trade for Jesus But let's begin by reading this section in Matthew 21, 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. You guys in the back are going to click through for me, right? Because I'm just going to read. Sorry, um, I got sidetracked. If anyone says anything, just say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of the beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, And the others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowd uh, went before him and followed him with shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd says, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now that's the classic Palm Sunday text, right? That's the video we just heard and watched And this is the word of God that describes it. And the whole city was asking the question that I hope that we're asking too. Who is Jesus? And maybe you know this Jesus personally, and maybe not. But whether you know him personally or whether you don't, we always must remind ourselves by asking this question, who is Jesus? Because that matters for us every single day. Who is he? Or another way of asking this is, what is he worth? You see, we have in this story, in this text, we have what to some people he was worth and what to others he was not. He was worth humiliation to some. He was worth a donkey to someone. He was worth making a gathering and a a hubbub to some. He was worth some people's cloaks. It says in the text that they took him off and put him on the ground. And this isn't like, you know, the road of Sherman Street out here. This is dirt road where animals were going up and down. This was on the Passover, so lots of people and lots of animals were traveling up and down this road at this time. And so it would be worth maybe a cloak because they didn't have washing machines back then either. So who knows how dirty it would be for how long. So to some degree, it was worth sacrifice. 
whether that was a donkey, whether that was personal intrigue, whether that was taking time out of your day to gather, whether that was a physical object like a cloak. And for the disciples, it was worth being an outcast. And so like I started this, we like to think that we're nothing like Judas, who we know was a betrayer. This Judas traded Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. But if we take an honest look at our hearts, we have to understand that we too trade Jesus at times. We trade Jesus for things like wealth or comfort or power or control or maybe some other idol. But we all make exchanges. We all trade Jesus out for something else. And so as on Palm Sunday, as we move towards Easter, that's the question I want to talk with you about is what are four things? Now, I'm sure there's more than four things today. I'm going to cover four things, four things that we often tempted to trade Christ for. And so as we look at these texts, um, I just, I want to invite you to allow the Holy Spirit to work on your heart and not be in the position of now pointing fingers at people like Judas or people like Judas in our lives as we go through these things and say, oh, I know somebody who trades that for Christ, but rather allow the Holy Spirit to speak to your own heart as we think about what we might sometimes be trading Christ for. Let's, let's pray. Our dearest Lord Jesus, as we come to you now, we ask that you might speak to our hearts personal. That today, through your word, reveal in us where we neglect you and help us instead to cherish you, to submit to you, to honor you, to bring you the glory that you deserve. We often think of ourselves as above Judas, but your word tells us that our hearts too are desperately wicked, that we are capable of any kind of evil. And so we ask God that you would help us reveal to us the areas where we need repentance. Help us to cherish you above everything else in this world. We ask that because you are worthy and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So Matthew 26, as you turn there, Matthew 26, 6 through 16, if you want to follow along in your copy. Judas was willing to trade Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. What are we willing to trade him for? So this is what it says as they, they're going to go through with us. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? This could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, Whatever, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. So in this text, we see this juxtaposition. We see this juxtaposition of this woman and Judas. And the thing that they teach us is that we often trade wealth for Christ. 
So as we look at this text, here, here's the scenario that happened. So they are outside of the city. They have already done this, this entry, what we just heard about and what we just saw about. And then they kind of retire to this place to have a private celebration amongst themselves. And as they're staying there, while they're there, this woman comes in and uses this ointment of what we know to be like a year's wages. And so we've preached on this text before, and you can find that in the... In the uh, library of of texts, or maybe you've heard sermons on this before, but she does this as a gesture of her love for Christ. And in fact, the text says that she does this because she knows that he is about to die to prepare him for burial, right? And so they would often anoint the bodies with that, and because he's going to die a criminal's death, he's not going to have that opportunity. And so uh, by the Holy Spirit's prompting, she gives generously to Christ in this time and puts this ointment all over his body. We also know from other texts that the reasons that the disciples, we know this from here and then also what I'm going to talk about, we know this from here that they were upset because they said, hey, this could have been donated and you could have, you could have done so many things with this money. Think of the good that you could have done with this money. Primarily when it talks about here that they were indignant and it mentions it by name, Judas Iscariot was upset. Why? Well, we know from other texts that he was a thief and he would steal from the money bags. So here's what's happening. For three years, these disciples have been walking with Jesus. For three years, they've had to be homeless, probably sometimes hungry, often uncomfortable, ostracized. I mean, think about how the Pharisees and Sadducees and these religious elite talked to and thought about Jesus, and then you're in his inner circle. What does that mean that they think about you? And so for three years, Judas, as one of these 12, has dedicated his life giving up all these things. Remember Peter, Peter, we love Peter, right? Remember Peter even asks one time, hey, look at all we've given up. What are we going to have? And then remember Jesus says, hey, anything that anyone who gives up, you know, household, family, farm, even more than that's going to be added to them. By the way, I I paraphrase that text, but are you familiar with that? And so, so think about where Judas was. And so he's pilfering money because he wants some kind of a return on his investment, doesn't he? He spent a lot of time, a lot of effort, walking with Jesus for three years, and they thought that he was going to be the king. Remember what the video said? He rides in on this donkey. They thought that this was the conquering king. They thought that Jesus was going to be the one to lead Israel out of the boot from from Rome and now bring them back to this King David type of lifestyle. And instead, he comes in on a donkey, not a stallion. And instead, as they're having this feast And this time together, what Jesus says is he reminds them that he is going, actually, he's going back to Jerusalem to to die. And so Judas, what he's probably thinking is, I've already wasted so much time, so much money, so much effort on this man, and all that's going to happen is he's going to die? And so you have this juxtaposition of of this woman who understands the worth of Jesus and Judas, who desires the wealth of possession. And so he goes to these chief priests and he says, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? Jesus didn't live up to his expectations. And I wonder sometimes if if we battle with that. I wonder if we're just really honest today if sometimes we don't feel like Jesus is living up to our expectations. And I also wonder sometimes if we don't trade Jesus for wealth. 
that extra time at work. Working on Sunday. Now, some people have jobs that they have to work on Sundays. Other people choose to work on Sundays. And so if, if you're offended because I say you shouldn't work on Sunday, well, then I'm sorry, but you should have some kind of Sabbath, and it's important for the saints to gather together. And so I don't mean this directed at any one person. I'm not thinking of any one person. I'm just saying that sometimes do we not choose wealth over Jesus? And it's a really bad gamble to make. You guys ever seen the, I don't even know if it's on TV anymore. It used to be popular, Deal or No Deal? Is it still on? Okay. And I'm not, and correct me if I'm wrong later, if you will, but I believe how this works is you, you choose this briefcase and uh, there's a certain amount of money in the briefcase. And then the person who's the, what do you call them, host, then says, all right, so some of them are going to go away. Now you have the chance to make, so are you going to take the deal I'm going to give you or are you going to choose a different briefcase or, or keep your briefcase? I'm, I'm, I'm foggy on it. But the point is, is this, it's a gamble. It's kind of like going to a casino. So if I work, you know, 40 hours a week and I've got this paycheck, I can take that paycheck that I've earned and I've done, or I can bring it to the casino and I can put the money on black or on red or on whatever and I can spin the wheel and and maybe, just maybe, I will get a better turnout than what I had, but also there's a possibility that I might lose it all. And a lot of times people fall into this trap of what we call the prosperity gospel of Jesus. What that means is, is what Judas thought. I think Judas was the very first one to fall into this prosperity gospel. What Judas thought is, if I follow Jesus, my road is going to be paved. Because I've spent three years with him. I'm in the inner circle. And so, by the way, since I'm already the treasurer of this small amount, when I get into the kingdom, who do you think is going to be over the books? Probably old Judas. And instead, what Jesus says is, no, 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 I'm actually going to die. And Judas says, I've got to get out before, before all this goes awry. And so we often, too, seek to trade Jesus for wealth. And actually, the prosperity gospel is one of the most wicked turns of this. When you follow Jesus, it's not always going to be peaches and cream. And Judas, just like us, we sell out for such a small price. So you put the extra work in, so you get the extra money, so you can buy what? A better car? A bigger house? Take better vacations? You know, if you believe in Christ and you've really given to your life in him, did you know that they use gold for pavement in heaven? Like, have you ever thought about this? The gates of heaven are made out of all one single big pearl? Can you even imagine the oyster that must have produced that pearl? As if God couldn't just make it himself, right? And just, But they use gold as streets in heaven. And we're worried about trying to stash a little extra in our 401k. And so I I guess the application for this first point about how we often trade Jesus for wealth and how Judas did that and how we ought not to just point our fingers at him but rather look at our own hearts as we think about the things and the opportunities that we don't take for Jesus because of other opportunities. Jesus is worth more than anything else. Is that the case for you? 
And so beware of what you are tempted to trade him for. The thing about Judas that is very different from our story is that Judas's story, his end happened before the cross. His story ended tragically. Judas was not able to see the resurrection. But unlike Judas, we live after the cross. We live after the resurrection. That means that we don't have to be crushed by our sin and by our shame, and instead we can have restoration. We can have what Judas never was able to have. We can have peace in our Lord. Next is Matthew 16. If you want to turn there with me. Matthew 16, 24 through 28. We have a rest coming. It's on the horizon. But first, we are called to take up our cross. Read with me in Matthew 16, 24 through 28. Then Jesus, Jesus, I'm sorry, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. You see, so wealth might be one of the first things, and maybe that's not it for you, but even if it is, I'm going to say it leads to this. Because I don't know about you, but the reason I might want more money is so I can have a nicer car, which means comfort, or a nicer bed to sleep in, or a nicer chair to rest in, or a nicer computer to do work on, right? It's all about our comfort, my comfort, more vacations to go on, or whatever it is. But the thing that I'm chasing out of the wealth is often comfort. But following Jesus, like I just talked about, doesn't mean comfortable. In fact, he calls us to die. Do you see that in the text? He says, come and take your cross. This, by the way, this is not a good sales strategy. It's just not. If your goal is to maximize those who will come after you, you don't say, hey, you know what would be really great? Let's go die. It's not a good pitch. And so I want to ask you, what do you need to get uncomfortable about, about with Jesus? Where is it that we are still clinging to comfort instead of Christ? For many of us, if we're honest, it, it is simply this. We don't witness as much as we ought to. In fact, we often see opportunities to witness and somehow don't take them. Whether we justify it by saying, hey, it's, it's just the wrong timing right now. Or whether we say, I, I just don't know the right things to say. Or, you know, I'm afraid that I would, I, I would offend them and then that would shut down any other conversations. And I'm not saying that some of these aren't valid concerns. But I know I'm guilty of this. I know that at times I have chose comfort over Christ. And so I think I'm on safe ground to say, 
you probably have too. And not just with witnessing. How about with how we treat our children or our spouses? How about our work ethic? Do we work as hard as we could? Do we get uncomfortable in our labor because we're doing that work to the glory of God or do instead we just do enough to get by and get the paycheck on Friday? I mean, think about the difference between work boots and slippers. When I was in the military, I got issued boots and I, I love these boots. I have told my wife that when these boots finally bite the dust, I will be spending government money on buying new boots, which so I'm sure that they're not cheap. I have no idea how much military boots cost. But the boots that I got when I was in the military are wonderful. Now, they're steel-toed, okay? And my kids love it when I wear them through the house because we play this game called Robot where they stand on my feet. Maybe you've played this with your kids. They stand on my feet, they look out, and they hold my hands, and we robot around the house, right? And sometimes, if it's Ellie controlling, we punch the boys because that's what we do with robot. But, but what I'm saying is here is these boots, they're comfortable now, but maybe they weren't originally. But I'll tell you why I love these boots. They're designed in such a way where if you drop something heavy on your, on your foot, on your toe, that it won't hurt, your, hurt you. Or if it's something really heavy, I don't know if you knew this about steel toe. This is, this is free, totally unrelated. If you, steel toes are actually designed in such a way where if you drop something really heavy, instead of crushing your toes, it actually just severs them clean off so that they can stitch them on later. That's free for you. <clears throat> so anyway, but these boots weren't necessarily comfortable to begin with, but now I absolutely love them. And they were absolutely necessary for my job in the military because I was working with things that were heavy. But I also have a pair of slippers. I have a pair of slippers at home. And they don't leave the house. And they're my house shoes. And sometimes I wear them around the house. They're for very different purposes, aren't they? How foolish would it be to you if we were going to go on a hike and you saw me show up in flip-flops or slippers? You know that we should wear hiking boots if we're going on a hike. Some of you farm, you know that we should wear muck boots, which I didn't know existed until I moved here to Allegan. Muck boots when you're working with livestock. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I don't know if you know that name. If you don't, write that down. Dietrich Bonhoeffer and look him up and do some research and maybe read a book by him. If you have some vacation time and stuff, you will be blessed by it, I'm sure. But this is what he wrote. He says, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. Come and die. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ's union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it is, meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Only the man who is dead to his own will can follow Christ. In fact, every command of Jesus is a call to die with all our affections and lusts. But we do not want to die. And therefore, Jesus Christ and his call are necessarily our death and our life. And so I want to ask again, what do you need to get uncomfortable about with Jesus? The second thing I want to say, just to make sure that it is said, is this. Beware of the toxicity of kind of the self, the desire to like self-hate. 
don't fall under the category of saying, hey, if I'm not being persecuted or if I'm not miserable, then I'm not following Jesus. But we do have to be aware and understand that that following Jesus will at times be uncomfortable. That Jesus himself told us that this is what we should expect. But also that our end is with him, in him, forever, in his glory. And so it's kind of like that old saying, no, no pain, no gain. But the pain is temporary and the rest is permanent. And so we can be uncomfortable in Christ and give up our comfort in Christ because one day we will have rest. We will have peace. We have that hope. Amen. Third, John uh, 18, 33 through 40 is the next section I want to look at here. So if you want to turn to John 18, you can do that. Or again, you can follow along on the screen. But Jesus' kingdom is not one of public or political power, but rather of sacrifice. And yet it is still one of, of power. And so in the section in, oops, are we already there? Oh, good. Thank you. Uh, John 18, 33 begins us where it says, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Uh, Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who hears the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So did you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. There is a power struggle in this passage. There is a power struggle with the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious elite, and Jesus. Uh, there, there is a potential power struggle between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And you see here, there are some people who actually have power and people who have faux power. You have some people like uh, Jesus who has actual power and who yet chooses not to use it for our good and for his glory. You have Pilate who has actual power and yet chooses not to use it even for the, for the truth of what he knows to be true and yet allows those with faux power, the religious elite, to then usurp his power and put Christ to death. And so there's a power struggle in this passage. But there's power struggles in our world too, isn't there? And so oftentimes we will trade Jesus for power. This happens in politics all the time. This happens on politics, and by the way, I don't care if you're right or left, Republican, Democrat, anything in between, it makes no difference to me. All politicians, most of them, I wouldn't say all, I guess, there's probably one out there somewhere, right? But most politicians, especially the last couple that we have had that make it into the news, will often use religion for a power move whether it is how they profess to be or whether that is how they portray themselves to be, 
And if we're honest, sometimes we can do that in churches. Sometimes we can be a part of a church simply because we see it as a social network. And to some degree, maybe that's the case. We're a family of believers. We can ask one another for help. We can use each other's gifts to help one another, and we should be doing that. That's a healthy body, and that's what we do. But when we use the church as just a means to exercise power, whether that's in leadership or whether that's in the body or whether that's individuals in it over programs and whatever it is that we do, that's wrong to exercise power in wrong ways with one another. Remember, Jesus said, like, don't be like the Gentiles do as they exercise this power over one another, but rather you should not be that way, but rather seeking to serve one another. And at the same time, it's nice to be powerful, isn't it? I mean, think of Steve Urkel. You guys remember Steve Urkel? Poor Steve. Everybody wanted Stefan Urkel instead of Steve Urkel, if you remember the TV show. Or poor Bruce Banner. When the going got tough, they wanted the Hulk, not the scientist. Or Superman. Nobody goes around saying, when I grow up, I want to be Clark Kent. Although, by the way, again, is the only superhero who his alter ego, I mean, his true ego is Superman, and he just puts on the fake, does this make sense? Whatever, I know. Anyway. But if we are Christians, if we are those following Christ, we have power. We have power in Christ, Christ's power in us. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing in us. And so we have that kind of Holy Spirit power. And Scripture tells us time and time again that believers are called to wield their God-given power for the assistance of the powerless in the glory of Christ because that is what Christ did. I know I shouldn't think of this, but every time I talk about Christ's power, I've ruined myself. I always think of uh, Aladdin's genie, you know, immense cosmic power, itty-bitty living space. And I just think to myself, that's what God had to do. He had to take all that immense, vast power of the fullness of his deity and to constrain it into the creation known as flesh, human flesh, to be fully man and yet fully divine and have all this power. As Christ says, and I love this. So, you know, they're, they're asking about this kingdom. And of course, he's the king of all kings, right? Uh, the name above all names. Every king and every kingdom is going to bow to this king. And here's what he says. He says, if, if my kingdom was of this world and my servants would have been fighting. And then I think back to the story of those prophets with Elijah and Elisha and how there was this big battle that was going to happen and one of them prayed to have the eyes of the other opened and his eyes were opened and they saw this myriad of the heavenly hosts all around. And I'm just thinking how Jesus might be thinking through this as he's telling Pilate this, almost like, bro, you don't even know the level of destruction I could rain down with a single like Thanos snap onto all of this and just be done. Well, we are called to wield our God-given power for the assistance of the powerless and for the glory of Christ. And so it's nice to be powerful. And I pray that all of us in this room would have the fullness of the power of Christ and that we would use that for his glory and for the assistance 
of the powerless. And so the last section that I want to talk about is Matthew 26. God's will is more important than the way that we want things to be or than the way that we want things to go. And if you see what I see here, I think all of these kind of stack towards each other ultimately for, for, for this one. And so as we look at Matthew 26, 36 through 46, this is what it says. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, Zebedee uh, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and, and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you could not watch with me one hour. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for a third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise and let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And I think what we see here is control. Control for us is usually, if we're honest, the overarching issue. We seek wealth so that we can have control. Control for now, control for future. We seek comfort because it is an application of control. We seek power so that we can wield control. We crave control. And I think we often trade Christ for control. There's a saying, let go and let God. And it's nice to know that Jesus in his humanity also struggled with, with this burden, this temptation to choose control. You know, I, I don't know about you, but I see this progression in Jesus and I pray for it for us. I pray that God would change our hearts from asking for change to submission. And then that when we submit, we, like Jesus too, meet our challenges head on. You know, I don't know if you remember this or not, but there was a global pandemic recently. Maybe there still is. I don't, I don't really know. I don't know. I don't know what's going on with this. But if that didn't shake your ideology of control, then you're far too blind. It shook nation's view of control. As we look ahead to the resurrection that's coming though, I hope that we are humbled by the gratitude that Jesus chose to obey even unto death rather than to control or by our human tendencies to manipulate the situation 
to impose his power for his own will rather than for the good of the powerless. This is what Christianity is all about, isn't it? Giving up control. Saying, I can't be good enough. I need for you to do it for me. I can't manage my life. I need you to do it for me. Without you, I am poor. I need your gracious gift of the riches of your son. Without you, my life is completely uncomfortable because I keep chasing these things that aren't bringing comfort. They tell me they're going to bring me comfort and then they never deliver. I feel absolutely powerless in my life knowing that I kind of float from one thing to another, always seeking, never finding, always groping and chasing and never finding rest. And all of this is because if I'm true and if I'm honest, like we all should be, it is because I am desperate to have control over situations. We can't grow until we allow the Spirit to rearrange our priorities, our desires, and even our need for control. See, peace comes in embracing God's ultimate control over our individual lives as we seek to honor him through our obedience. Just be still and know. Take my yoke and follow me. It's that still small voice. It's the leading of the Holy Spirit that just simply prompts us to daily put one foot in front of the other and just to trust that the path that he has us on is one for our good as well as for his glory. There is immense freedom when we give up our control to Christ. So we'd like to think that we're nothing like Judas, but I think we're a lot more like him than we like to think we are. I think we often trade things for Jesus. But as we approach Easter, Christ himself invites us to repent and to treasure him above every idol or temptation. J.C. Ryle has this quote I want to read to you. You have part of it up on the screen. He says, let us serve him faithfully as our master. Let us obey him loyally as our king. Let us study his teaching as our prophet. Let us walk diligently after him as our example. Let us look anxiously for him as our coming redeemer of the body as well as the soul. But above all, let us prize him as our sacrifice and rest our whole weight on his death as an atonement for sin. Let his blood be more precious in our eyes every year we live. Whatever else we glory in about Christ, let us glory above all things in his cross. J.C. Ryle says it that way. Jesus said, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And Paul says it this way. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. We're not so different than Judas, except we have something Judas never had. 
we have a resurrected Christ who can redeem, who can restore, who can make new and make this your story. Let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, as we think of your words in Psalm 84, it says, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. You tell us also in that psalm, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere, and I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of of wickedness. May that be our prayer. Help us, God. Send us your spirit. As we looked over just these four, and we know that there are more, there are things that we trade for you. Remove them, we pray. Give us a desire for your dwelling place. Give us a desire for you. Make our souls long and even, yes, faint for your courts. Let our heart and our flesh sing for the joy of your living Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus. O Lord God of hosts, hear our prayers. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your forgiveness and for changing us. It's in your name we pray, amen.